Amen. Thank you so very much. Let's take our Bibles, please. Join me in 1 Samuel, all the way in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel chapter 16 for what we're going to do as a study. The last time we did this was about 17 years ago that we went through the life of, of uh, King David. And so I wanted to return to that. It's been just a little while and thought it would be helpful. Most of you know who David is. If all of a sudden I said, okay, tell me a story about David, which one would come to your mind? I don't know if I heard anybody. Okay. <laughs> Hello. Goliath would be one of those. David and Bathsheba, the very, very important character, very, very uh, popular figure. Most everybody has heard about King David. In fact, if you go through the Old Testament and the New Testament, you'll find out that he's the most often mentioned person in the Old Testament, second only to Jesus Christ in the New Testament. You know his story that he was one of the kings, one of the three kings that had ruled over Israel when they were all combined and all tribes were united. And uh, he was in that golden era of Israel's history as they were a united kingdom under he and his son Sol uh, Solomon. Those were the golden years of Israel's past. David, a writer of Psalms, Half of them are attributed to him. He's a guy who's an ancestor of Jesus Christ. The Messiah comes through his household. Very talented individual. By the end of his life, he's uh, gotten involved with music, poetry. He's become a political leader. He's a great administrator. He's an individual who's a military genius. Uh, so the guy's extremely gifted. And as you go through his story, you find out that he wasn't perfect. He's kind of like us in that he had flaws in his life, that he had some downfalls at times, some, some times in his life that he would just as soon forget. For him, it was when he committed adultery with Bathsheba and then murdered her husband to try to cover up. Very, very dismal, down, dark time in his life. And yet for all of that, God describes him as the only person ever described in the Bible as a man after God's own heart. That doesn't mean he's the only person that was ever that, but he's the only one given this designation, this description that he was a man after God's own heart. The story is a fascinating story. It starts in 1 Samuel 16 is where we first get introduced to David. But before we read it, let me set the scene. And I don't mean this to be silly, but 1 Samuel 16 obviously indicates we're jumping into the middle of the book. There's some 15 chapters before. And to understand what happens in 16 and following, you've got to understand what's happened in the first 15 chapters. Before David becomes the king, we're introduced to another character, and their story takes up most of 1 Samuel. It's the other king that preceded him, King Saul, um, who is a well-known character in Israel's history. And so David and Saul, their stories are really intertwined throughout 1 Samuel. David doesn't sit on the throne until the end of 1 Samuel. So from here on out through the rest of the book, we're going to be talking about David and Saul. David and Saul. David and Saul. And so they, we, we know their story. Just they overlap in time. They're intertwined. Most of you who are familiar with them know that they become related by marriage, that they, they serve together at some period of time. They're not the same age um, as we're going to see and hear a little bit later on. But both of them were clearly chosen by God to be the king. God makes it very clear. Saul, I chose you. And then later, because Saul has blown it, God says, I'm going to replace you. David, I chose you. And they're both going to be anointed and announced by the same person that is Samuel, the prophet. Now, I mentioned to the earlier group when we met, it, it's kind of ironic. Saul, when Samuel goes to Saul, the setting is Samuel is an old man at that point. And the people say to Samuel, we need somebody different. You're too old to lead us. You are gray-haired. You are really elderly. And he's the one that then he leads in the choice of Saul. Well, some 25 years later, that elderly old man is still around, and he's the one that anoints David. I wonder how old he was at that point. When, when we add another 25 years. But the story is that, that they both have a lot of similarities. They both rule for 40 years, each one of them in their own period. They're similar beginnings, and yet the story develops as it unfolds through 1 Samuel. We get their accounts, and we see some similarities, but we also see a lot of contrast. Like any good author, God who inspired the book, he's going to develop a lot of their character, their personality. And as time goes by, man or days, are they two contrasts. 
for us to look at and say, oh, I don't want to be like that. I want to be like this. And so they provide a lot of good lessons. Let me take the first lesson just to get started here this morning as we talk about them. We're just talking, starting with Saul, and David's going to compliment this in a moment. But number one, I want you to note this this morning. God's appointed servants, the people God chooses for a special task, are often people of common standing or of consideration. What I mean by that is this, that in David's case and in Saul's case, neither one of them come from a princely line. They're going to become kings, but they're not from noble families. They're not individuals who start off with royalty in their blood. They're from very common backgrounds, commoner type backgrounds, in fact. And so uh, the fact is neither one of them sought to be king. Reality, as we're going to see in just a moment, when they are announced to be king, hesitation abounds with both of these guys. So let's start off. Let's, let's do the story of Saul without reading it. I'll come to Samuel, uh, Samuel's account of David in chapter 16 in a minute. But I'm just going to go back a few chapters and tell some of the story, first of all, of Saul. Saul is a character that shows up in uh, 1 Samuel 9. And when he shows up, all we start reading about him, he's a son of Kish from the tribe of Benjamin. And he's sent on a journey. What happened, his dad, who happened to be somebody of community standing and wealth in the tribe of Benjamin, two or three of the donkeys went astray. And so dad says to Saul, you need to go and find the donkeys. And these donkeys are really travelers. I mean, they're, if you follow the account, they go all over the place. And so they're moving about, and under the providence of God, God leads in such a way, the donkeys end up in a town where where Saul's looking for them, and they say, oh, yeah, the donkeys have gone beyond. But in that town is the prophet Samuel. And people tell me, you should go and talk to the prophet Samuel. Go see him. Talk with him. He'll help to tell you where the donkeys are. And so when he sits down and talks with Samuel, they have this discussion. And Samuel is going to speak to him, and he's going to tell him in this account, he's going to say, hey, listen, God wants you to be the leader of the tribes. He says it this way, all of Israel will be looking to you. That's his announcement of saying, you're going to be the future king. Because they've already met as a nation and said, we're going to choose a king. In a few months, we're going to get a king. And so Samuel is saying, you're the guy they're going to pick. You're the guy that God's going to choose. And when Saul hears that, Saul's response is, not me, I can't. He says, I'm from the least of the tribes. Benjamin was the smallest of the 12 tribes. And my father's house is the least of all the households. And he says, I, I, I can't do it. There's hesitation on his part. There's hesitation. Well, the prophet says, hey, let me talk with you some more. Samuel and Saul have a conversation. He says, send your servant ahead. And when the servant goes ahead, Samuel pulls out of his pocket this flask of oil and he anoints Saul's head. And he says, you're going to be the king. You're going to be the king. It's just God has spoken. You're going to be the king. Saul goes home, and when he gets home, he, um, he gets there, and he never tells his family what happened. They said, oh, did you, did you find the donkeys? Yeah. Did you see the prophet? Yeah. What did the prophet say? He told me where to find the donkeys. He never tells them, he told me I'm going to be future, future king. There's hesitancy on his part. Well, the tribes all get together uh, a few weeks, months later, whatever the time frame is. And when they're all gathered together, it's Inauguration Day. We're choosing King Day. And so they cast lots. And they, the lots get down to the tribe of Benjamin. And then they cast lots of the different households or, or families of Benjamin. And Saul knows it's falling on his dad's house and he's going to be chosen. So he does the thing that any future presidential candidate would do. He hides he runs away, okay. And so he goes, and it says he hides amongst the stuff that is amongst all the uh, wagons and all the supplies for the people who are encamped there, and he's trying to hide himself. Hesitation on his part. The people come when they, they're told by the prophet. The prophet says he's over there, he's hiding. They go and grab him, they bring him out, and everybody's excited. Part of the excitement is, do you remember the description of Saul at this moment? He is head and shoulders above everybody else. And they see him and they, you know, God save the king. And everybody's excited. And so he's starting off at this moment and it's, it's absolutely sure, it's clear that God has chosen him to be the king. And so the story just unfolds and we now we fast forward. We go about 25 years into the future. 
And uh, when we come to that, we come to 1 Samuel chapter 16. Saul has been ruling for about 25 years. Saul has, as we'll see in a moment, we'll discuss, Saul has proven himself to become a bad king. Started off good, becomes a really lousy king. And God says, whoops, this guy can't stay as king. We've got, we've got to change kings. So we come to 1 Samuel 16. And the Lord said to Samuel, that same old bad prophet, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil, go, and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I have provided me a king among his sons. God clearly knows. One of the boys of Jesse is the future king. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hear it, he will kill me. Samuel and Saul have had a falling out. And the prophet is fearful of this king who is unstable at this point, King Saul. And the Lord said, okay, I'll give you a reason to go. Take a heifer with you and uh, say, I am come to sacrifice to the Lord. Call Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what thou shalt do. Jesse is David's, David's father, by the way. And you shall anoint unto me him whom I name unto you. Samuel did that which the Lord spake. He comes to Bethlehem, and the elders of the town, they trembled at his coming. And they said, comest thou peaceably? It would be like, all of a sudden, if I showed up for lunch, you would be absolutely horrified that I was there. I can understand that to a degree, but that's the reaction. And you say, why is that? Don't they want the prophet to come to their house? Actually, they're afraid. If you remember the previous chapter, when he showed up at the last time there was a gathering of all the people, they had disobeyed. The king, we'll see in a few minutes that King Saul had disobeyed and not killed the, the King Agag who was taken as a prisoner. And when the prophet came and said, whoa, you were told to, to destroy this king, this enemy of Israel. And Saul is going to give excuses. And the story goes that this old, feeble prophet who the people said, you're too old to lead us anymore, 25 years earlier, when this happens, 25 years later, when he's already declared old, he pulls out a sword and he hacks that king to pieces. So everybody knows Samuel he can be a little bit zealous at times. You know, he's got a cranky nature around him at moments. If you've done something wrong, he might whack you across the side of the head, let's say. And so they're fearful of him. And as a result, he's got to explain why he's there. And he says to the people, they said, did you come peaceably? He says, yeah, I came peaceably. I'm come to make a sacrifice unto the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come and join me to the sacrifice. He sanctified Jesse and his sons and called them to the sacrifice. And it came to pass when they were come that Samuel looked on Eliab and said, Eliab happens to be the oldest of Jesse's eight boys. He says, surely, woo, this has got to be the Lord's anointed before me. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord sees not as man sees, for man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab, the second son, made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither hath the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah to, pa to pass by. And he said, Neither hath the Lord chosen this one. And again, Jesse made seven of his sons. So a second running, run through of all seven boys to pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord hath not chosen any of these. Samuel said unto Jesse, Are these all your children? And he said, There remains yet the youngest. And behold, he keeps the sheep. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Send and fetch him. Good Pennsylvania Dutch term. Go and fetch him, for we will not sit down till he comes thither. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was red-haired and with all of a beautiful countenance and goodly to look to. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Samuel took the horn of the oil and anointed him in the midst of all of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. Here he is, David's anointing. And we've already rehearsed how the family gets together and they're going to anoint. And dad, he says, you know, one of your boys is going to be the king. God has provided. So bring all your boys. All seven parade through. No, none of them. Let's do it again. Let's bring all the boys. And then the prophet says, surely, are these all the boys? Oh, yeah. I forgot one. 
Does it ever happen parents forget kids? Does it ever happen? No, yes. Now, I'm not sure if sometimes you leave them here on purpose or it's by accident. Okay. But sometimes we forget kids, and here he is. He's all of a sudden you know, forgotten by dad, and dad has to say, oh, yeah, there is one more. And when he describes David, it's interesting what he says about him after he answers and he says, um, he says, uh, yeah, yeah, there's one more. And he describes and he says, he's the youngest. Typically, in the original language, it means he's the youngest of the boys. We understand that. But the term is also used in other times in the Old Testament, that same term to describe the least inabilities, the less talented one. I assume it's probably Okay, it's probably the youngest. And then he goes on and says, and he keeps the sheep. Was that a derogatory thing? Was he saying, um, he's doing something kind of insignificant. He's just out in the fields by himself. Was he saying, David loves to be a loner. He just kind of, he's, he's secluded all alone by himself. And he kind of stays there and he doesn't mind the stink of the sheep. He kind of comes home and smells like them. And David's kind of the odd duck of all eight boys. The impression is dad forgets about him and David's the insignificant one. David's the one that kind of like, does it ever happen in your family? Maybe you're the youngest. Maybe you're the middle child. Maybe you're certainly not the oldest. They always get spoiled, right? Okay. Whatever your place in the order, you might say, you know, my parents, they kind of forgot about me, but they always thought about... Maybe you're one of those that say, you know, they have pictures and stuff of the older kids... But when we came along, there's no picture. That, that happened to my family. My parents had lots of albums of my older siblings. When I came along, they were too busy with all four kids that were all under five years of age. So they didn't take pictures. So my brothers and sisters always told me that I was adopted. They just, you know, they just, you know, that I just happened to show up one day, you know, that I wasn't, you know, came from juvenile hall or something like that. And so you, you, it happens that sometimes people go and they say, okay, I'm, I'm not recognized. I'm kind of the least. Or some of you sit here and say, I don't have talents if I'm the least talented. Uh, you know, I, I have a tough time playing the radio, much less an instrument. And you sit there and say, you know, I'm not that gifted. I'm not this. Then I have news for you. From looking at the story of these two guys, I have news for you. You're just the type of person God's looking for. In all reality, God wants to use you if you're not full of yourself. If you're an individual that kind of sits there and says, hey, I, I, I don't, I'm not chosen by the crowd to be the most likely to succeed, you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called to serve the Lord. What he goes on, he says, and he, as he completes the passage, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, the base things of the world, the things which are despised. God has chosen. I love that verse. That verse was written for me, especially this part. God has chosen the foolish things of the world. I loved it. When I was a senior in high school, I read that and I said, yes, I can minister. That verse was just, the, just what I needed. God wants to use you. And some people think I can only be used if I've got all of this criteria in my background and I have all this skill and this talent. And yet you're never going to be the king of Israel. We know that. And yet at the same time, you might got, have a position where God wants some of you to teach some of our classes here, to do a Bible study where you're training some future leader of Christianity. God wants to use you in a way that some of you say, you know, I couldn't do the same thing that Mike and Alicia are doing there in the country of Georgia. Uh, you'd be surprised what you can do. With God in, on your side and you yielded, you can do the most amazing things. God may have for you that he's put in your family where you are able to make a difference in future generations. You might be parenting one of those tremendous witnesses that may have profound impact because of your investment, your training, your teaching of them. Maybe some of you teens, you say, you know, I, I'm just a youngster. I, I, I'm only, you know, just entering into the, the youth group. But God may want you to be one of the leaders that makes a difference by your testimony, by your example. God may have you in a business field where you say, okay, you know, I'm, I'm not doing the same thing as Wayne's doing, but that's okay. 
God has you in, in a community as a Christian businessman to make an impact, to be a witness, to be a testimony. God can use you. He wants to use you. No matter what your background, no matter what you're doing, just remember this simple truth. God's appointed servants are often people of common standing and of common consideration. That fits us. That fits us. Let's do number two. Number two that stands out. God's appointed servants are given all they need to be successful for the task that God gives them. We go back to the story of Saul. When Saul was first appointed king. And we read multiple different comments that are made to Saul. He was assured by the prophet, God is with you. He was hesitant, but the prophet said, God is with you. He was told that the Spirit of God is going to come upon you. By the way, let me make this observation. Remember that in that time, in that Old Testament era, at the time when Saul and David, the Spirit of God did not come upon everyone. Very select individuals that God's Spirit would come. Saul was one of them, given the Spirit of God. He has a friend, an advisor, a mentor, a Christian leader that will help him. Samuel is old, but Samuel's going to be there a long time. And Samuel cares. He wants him to be successful. And when Saul falls flat on his face, we read in chapter 15, we already read in chapter 16, Samuel cares for Saul so much he weeps. He mourns. He is vested in Saul's life. Saul had friends who really cared. So here he is, a man who God gave everything he needed. God's assistance, God's presence, God's spirit, godly people around him. He could be successful. David. Read the story of David. When David is anointed, we've ended reading the story in chapter 16 with this phrase. It said this, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. Whatever task David was assigned, and we know what it was, that task, God gave him exactly what he needed to do the task. God gives you exactly what you need to do the task. You're hesitant. You say, I don't know if I can do it. Wait a minute. God's Holy Spirit resides in you. If you're a New Testament, modern-day, born-again believer, then the Spirit of God is in your heart, guiding you, directing you. You've got God with you at all times. We also have more than David and Saul ever had. We've got the complete written Word of God. We also have that same idea that we have spiritual friends and counselors sitting here that would help you, that would pray for you, that would give you assistance as you say, what would I teach? How would I present this? How do I do this Bible study? What do I do when I'm parenting and this happens or that happens? People are there to help you out. You know, like never before, we live in a day where we have tools to help us study our Bible. We have so much at our disposal to study the Word of God. And yet, probably the shame is, we might be one of the generations that do the least study. You have whatever you need. In fact, you've got it even better than Saul and David. You can go to prayer anytime, any day, anywhere. Without a priest, without a temple, man, you can serve the Lord. You are set, God says. So just remember that simple truth that God can use people of common backgrounds and God gives those individuals who are yielded to serve, He gives them everything they need to be successful. Let's do a number three. Number three in the story. God's appointed servants do not have the freedom to do whatever they want to do. God's chosen servants, they don't have the freedom to do whatever they want to do. You know, it, it's, it, I, I know we don't see it too often, but sometimes in the political realm, you might get a leader who thinks they're above the law. Again, we don't see that too often, do we? Okay. We don't ever discuss how many rules a governor can make. We, we don't discuss, you know, executive orders. A lot of that discussion is in part of our society. Supreme courts, whether state or national, they're, they're discussing these things. Because it's common that leaders often think they have no limits. Well, that's exactly what's illustrated in this story. In the story, we start with the, the account of Saul. Saul is appointed king. 
And as he's appointed king, you start reading his story. He is hesitant at first. He's cautious at first. And even the first battle he goes out to in chapter 12, he's, he's kind of just, okay, I, I got to make sure I'm doing this right. Please, prophet, tell me what to do. Make sure you guide my every step. But then all of a sudden we get further into his story. By the second year of his reign, he knows what a king's supposed to do. He's done battle already. He, he doesn't have to be as reliant upon the Lord. It's kind of like, like, you know, the first week on the job, we pray a whole lot more about that job than we do the second, third year. It's like when we have parents. The first few weeks we bring them home, we don't have a clue. We're praying, we're fasting. Not, not necessarily by choice, but because they keep us up all night. Okay, we, we fast. But then as time goes by, we don't pray as much because we've got it down pat. Well, that's what Saul does. Saul, all of a sudden, he is becoming full of himself. Benjamin Franklin was the one, I think, who said this. He says, any man who's in love with himself finds no rivals. The, the idea is this man becomes so full of himself, and the story in chapter 13 is the Philistines are coming. And here they come, and they start invading, and the prophet tells them what you need to do is you need to go to Gilgal, get all the, tr- the troops of Israel together, and I'm going to meet you. I'm going to come, and when I come and arrive, I'll offer sacrifice, we'll go to the Lord together, we'll pray, and God will tell me to tell you what to do in the battle. So they get together. They, all the troops of Israel, there they are in chapter 13, they're gathered together at Gilgal, they're going to go to battle against the Philistines. And Saul is waiting, and he's waiting, he's got the troops, and as he's waiting, he's doing the American thing. He's watching his clock, his watch. Man, he told me he'd be here at 11.15, and it's 11.16. And he's very time-conscious. And as he's time-conscious, he's saying, okay, we've you know, we got to get moving. We've got to get this thing started. So Saul makes the animal sacrifice to the Lord. Is it a bad thing to do sacrifice to the Lord? Yes or no? no it's not a bad thing. What's the bad thing that Saul did? He's not he's not the right guy to do it. He's not a priest. He's the king, but he's not the priest. He's of the wrong tribe. The only tribe, for those who are unfamiliar with the Old Testament, the only tribe that was supposed to be making sacrifices were the Levites. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. He's not qualified to do the priestly duties. Very specific, very clear. You don't do that. That's limited. Well, he's the king. He can do anything he wants. So he goes and makes the sacrifice, and wouldn't you know, as soon as he's done, Samuel shows up. Yeah, Samuel shows up, and Samuel comes in, walks up, and Samuel, he rebukes him. Interesting. Interesting. Just look back there. Watch, watch how this unfolds. Samuel, what's more interesting is watch Saul's reaction to all this. As uh, Samuel comes walking in, and he says in verse 13, verse 11, what have you done? Saul's response, because I saw that the people were scattered from me and that you came not within the days appointed and that the Philistines gathered themselves together at Michmash, therefore said I, the Philistines will come down upon me now and I have not made supplication to the Lord. I forced myself, therefore, and offered a burnt offering. In other words, I had no choice. Y'all, I just had to do it. Does he sound like Adam in the garden? You were late, and the people were leaving, and the Philistines were coming, and I had no choice. I was forced to do this thing. Well, that's not the way God saw it. As you read on in the story, God saw it a little bit differently because the prophet says to him in verse 13, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God, which he commanded you. For now would the Lord have established your kingdom upon Israel forever. Interesting. Go, go ahead. And you, you do the in-depth discussion on the sovereignty of God and what he knew and what he didn't know. But he says here, you would have been established forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord hath sought him a man after his own heart, and the Lord hath commanded him to become the captain over his people, because you have not kept that which the Lord commanded you. And so then you have the story that they depart. He's told, he's wrong, and God is going to take, take his kingdom from him. Now, we continuing the story, mark this in your Bible. 
from chapter 14 continues a little bit more of that discussion and then towards the end of chapter 14 it gives you details about he continued wars, battles, things like that 20 years in those last few verses 20 years time before we get to chapter 15 so he is king now for over 20 years at that time He's far into his reign. David at this point, when we're getting into chapter 15 and 16, David's about 15 years age. David wasn't even born when Gilgal happened. When God said, I'm going to find somebody else. And so now we have, we have this situation where we have in chapter 15, Saul shows his character once again, his foolishness. He hasn't changed, hasn't repented. He's told by the prophet, you got to go and take care of the Amalekites. They're an ancient enemy. They've been a thorn in the flesh. God wants you to go attack those people and wipe them out. Destroy them because they've resisted your, your witness. They have not listened. They have, none of them have proselytized and they, God wants them destroyed for what they did in the past. And if you read in chapter 15 verses 3, 4 and look at it, God's very clear. I want you to just wipe out everything. Don't keep anything. The animals. The people especially don't keep the king. Remember in ancient days, if you wanted to show how powerful you were, you would keep your, the king and parade him to show how, you know, I beat that guy in battle. So what happens is, you read, and as the story unfolds, it says this, Saul spared Agag, the best of the sheep, the oxen, lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. That's exactly what God told him not to do. And he's the king. He can do what he wants. And God's prophet comes to him. And he starts off in verse 13. He walks into the camp and, he, and the old man prophet says, what means the bleeding of the sheep and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? What have you done? And the discussion that follows is so solish. It is amazing in their conversation. Here's Saul. They... They brought the Amalekites. It's the people he's blaming. He goes on, he says, the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen. He makes the comment, he says, what was kept was to sacrifice unto God. And he says this comment, all the rest of it we utterly destroyed. I had nothing to do with keeping anything. I did my part. Listen, look what the prophet says. Because God knows you did not obey the Lord. You flew upon the spoil and did evil. You're lying to me, buddy. You're lying. You're pretending something when you go to church. And all of a sudden, you're, you're being spoken to, and you say, no, I didn't do it. You know, did you put your hand in the cookie jar? And all the crumbs are around their face. And they say, no, I didn't do it. And you say, you got crumbs all over. Well, my brother made me do it. Okay. So what happens he goes on, he says, I have obeyed, watch, look at the words. I have obeyed and have brought Agag the king. While he's saying, I have obeyed, he admits, I disobeyed. But he doesn't even see it. Have you ever run into somebody who you say, hey, listen, you know, what you did was wrong. No, it wasn't really wrong that I, that I beat up that, that kid that I didn't like. It wasn't really wrong that I stole. You know, well, no, no, I didn't, I didn't do wrong that I lied or stole. And, and he's doing it. And then he says, but the people. He keeps on blaming others. Have you ever run into people who always shift the blame to others? I'm so glad we don't have them around here. <laughs> Not in Lebanon County, we don't got people like that, right? Everybody owns up to their own doings every time. Well, Saul, he refuses. And as a result, here's all the statements that are made to Saul. That you are going, you're done. You're done. You're, you're going to be replaced. In fact, you're not even going to see me anymore, the prophet says to him. I'm out, I'm out of here. And you'll never see him again. And God's comment, it repented. It bothered the Lord that he had even allowed Saul to become the king. So here he is. One who thinks he can do anything ends up with a sad, sad story lesson. Just because he was an authority, he was never told he could do whatever he wanted. The same th truth, God's servants are to be subservient to God. 
Just because we're saved, it doesn't mean we can live any old way we want. Just because you're a dad, you don't have the privilege and the authority to do anything you want with your kids. Just because you're a boss doesn't mean you can cheat and lie and, and be a crook to others. Just because you've been voted into some public office, it doesn't give you the ability to be corrupt. Just because you're a pastor of a church or a deacon, it doesn't give you the right to be a crook, immoral, unethical, because you hold a position. God's people are chosen from common ranks, and God gives them everything they need, but God doesn't allow them to live any old way they choose. You are to live to the glory of God at all times. The story is played out. That's why David is going to be chosen, because God has said, I need a replacement, because Saul has not followed me. He did not obey my word. Which brings us to number four. God's appointment of servants is primarily based on what is in the person's heart. God's primary basis of choosing people is what's in their heart. The reason I know that is because when Samuel is telling Saul, you blew it, he says to him, God is going to find somebody else, a man after his own heart, somebody better than you. We even read that when Samuel comes and he's got Jesse's boys parading past him, all seven, twice. He's told by God, God, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. So it's very clear that God says, hey, listen, I'm going to check out the hearts. In, in fact, there's other passages that support this. It says, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro constantly throughout the whole earth to find himself, somebody he can show himself strong, somebody he can bless, somebody he can use, somebody that he can help them to serve whose heart is perfect towards him. God examines hearts. God, when he looks at this crowd of us here this morning, God is not impressed and looking at solely, what did you put in, in the offering box? How are you dressed? You know, what translation you have on your lap, and how many did you bring with you? Are you wearing a tie and a coat? Are you dressed a certain way? You know, how is it? What kind of vehicle? God isn't impressed with those things. God is looking where right now? At our hearts. At our hearts. Now, don't misunderstand me. Don't swing the pendulum and do something foolish that says, oh, that, mean, that means God doesn't ever care what I dress like. God never cares what I look like. No, there are passages of scriptures that make it very clear that we still have to have a moral principle, even in our attire, that we're modest in attire for the ladies in particular, men also. And he warns about not dressing and looking like the world. He even talks about hair lengths in scripture. In the New Testament, talks about the length of men's hair and what ladies do with their hair. We, we read in passages that we know, we know that Saul was a big guy. We understand that. We know that David was a good-looking guy. We know that. We read that. We see that. It's not like, you know, God purposely chooses and wants to use only those that are rejected by society so don't swing the pendulum so, so far that you say, well, I've got to make myself look the most miserable I can to be used by God. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dress like a pauper. I'm going to have that face like a sad sack believer all the time. Don't, don't swing the pendulum that way. Understand that God is concerned about our reputation, our appearance, to a degree. That God is concerned that, we, that people like myself, one of the qualifications for church leadership, to have a good reputation with those in the community, as far as that would mean social standing, business, how we handle finances. Understand that the virtuous woman, her qualities were she was looked at in the community. She had a good reputation. Understand that how you handle your finances. God is concerned that you don't, you don't, you know, stick it to people, that you, you take care of your obligations. We could go on and on and on. But the fact is, 
The reality is that even though God does have a concern about our appearance, that isn't what is major with him. That isn't what the major reason. He isn't looking here this morning to say, okay, who can I use? Well, I'm going to look primarily in your pocketbook. Who has the most money? Thank God he doesn't do that. God doesn't look around and say, who has the greatest abilities, the greatest talents? I am so thankful he doesn't do that, or I'd never be used. God doesn't look to see who's the most beautiful people in this room. Whoa, God, thank you, that's not a qualification. Because some of us, we don't get anywhere near halfway even. So what do we find? We find this, that when God looks, he looks below the surface. This is the lesson that Jesus was telling the churchgoers, the Pharisees, the ones who in Jesus' day, they looked the best in the church-going crowd. They had everything right. They had the attire. They had the talk. They had the walk. They were the ones that everybody looked up to. And Jesus says, Woe unto you, Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are so concerned about tithing and making sure that even your garden herbs get in there. You're so focused on that type of stuff and you forget to love people. You forget the weightier matters of forgiving somebody who's offended you. And you come back every time to the temple and you still have a grudge. You still haven't forgiven. And he goes on, he talks, you make clean the outside of the cup. But inside, there's all kinds of garbage and extortion. You're like those, those tombs that they look beautiful. Oh, they're so pretty, they're whited. But when people touch them, they're defiled. That's the way you teachers are. That's what Jesus told them. You come to worship and you're a hypocrite. That on the inside, you're covering things up like lying and anger and immorality and dishonesty. And he says, here you are, you're pretending. God sees it. God sees it. He makes it very clear. God sees the heart. May, may I make a practical suggestion before I go any further along that line? If God looks at the heart, and if God is concerned about a person's character, what should we look for? What should we look at? The New Testament church was guilty of looking at pocketbooks and jewelry and clothing. And so when they'd see somebody rich come in, they would parade that person to the very front of the auditorium and give them the best seats on the platform because they were enamored with wealth. And he says to them, that's wrong. That's wrong. You shouldn't be doing that. We, we should be individuals that we put a great stress on character on what the person is, not what the person has. In fact, you know, th this whole story shows me something that just, you may want to write this in your Bible. There are three types of looks that take place in this story. There are those who evaluate by age. They look and they say, too young or too old? Too old to serve, too old to have an operation, too young to serve, too young, you know, to do this or that. There are people that it's all about age. Then there are those who are concerned about appearance, how we look this way, or with our checkbooks or our clothing. Then there is God who's all about attitude. And so we look and say, hey, if God is all about attitude, then shouldn't we as a church, as individuals, really be concerned about people's attitude and character? In fact, when it comes to making major decisions, there is the possibility that some people make a decision purely, solely, absolutely all about, does that, does that individual wow me physically? Woohoo! Yeah, that's, that's a beauty. He's got a tuft. Woohoo! Okay. Nobody ever says that, so I was, I was safe on that one. Okay. No, you know, is it down, by the way? Okay. <laughs> so people look at appearance. Appearance only. They don't look to say, hey, if I'm dating this person, are they honest? Are they respectful? 
How do they respond to their parents? That'll make a difference how they respond to you. Trust me. How do they treat others? How do they handle their monies? I don't mean this in the wrong way. Should there be an attraction physically? There better be. Okay, That's normal. That's natural. We're not discounting that totally. But I want to warn you, if you get with that person, as time goes by, their looks will change. <laughs> there will be expansions. <laughs> there will be wrinkles that we never expected. There will be losses. The body changes. We need to be people that we're saying, and we're teaching our kids, be careful. Look at character. Character matters. May I suggest it? Character matters in elections too. May may I bring it really close to home? We're going to be doing elections in our church. When we do elections, do we just base it on age? They're young. Therefore, we want them to to be in a position because it will be new blood. Or they're young. They can't serve. We only want old people to be with the old pastor. (laughs) No. What were they told in the New Testament to look at? Seven men of honest report and full of the Holy Spirit. Never concerned about how much money. Never concerned about what they drove. Never concerned just about what's their heart. Do they have a heart that's shown by serving other people? And so you have this, and this brings us back to the heart of the message as we bring it together. The heart of the message is simply this. What exactly does it mean, a man after God's own heart? What does that mean? I can give you a little bit of a definition here. Second Chronicles, when it says, God is searching the whole world, one whose heart is perfect towards him, that perfect does not mean sinless. Because if God's eyes are running through this auditorium looking for a sinless person, how many does he find in this room? None. There is no not one who is righteous. For all have sinned. All of us. So when he says perfect, let's, let's not use modern 2021 interpretation of perfect on a text written thousands of years ago. Let's go back to find out what did that word mean. What did it mean? The word, when it was originally meant and it's translated in English, it means to have this idea in total agreement with, to be in harmony with, to be one that is loyal to or would stand beside each other. Like the idea that I'm following him because we agree, because we have the same mind. That is, I'm going to follow God because I agree with what God says. And when God says I've done wrong, I'm not going to blame other people. I'm going to own it. The heart that says says this idea, I'm going to be loyal to God. Perfect? No. But I'm going to be like the righteous man that falls seven times and gets back up seven times. I'm going to be an individual whose heart is really interested in the things of God. Not just on Sunday at 10.30, but really throughout the week, I'm going to be thinking God. I'm going to be focused on God. I'm going to have a heart for God. Please don't take this wrong. Please don't take this wrong, but let me use it as an illustration. Most every one of you were surprised this morning, who, uh, who ever come here for any length of time, we've been here in this building since 1984. We have, throughout that time, known that they're going to be building across the street. We've been told that multiple times. But since 1984, we've enjoyed a beautiful row of trees across the street. Okay? We've, but we've known they're going to build one day. The heart that has to think like God's heart isn't like, oh man, how could they, you know, as somebody told me, why didn't you go out there and stop them? They had a bulldozer. Okay. Yeah, I'm sad to see the the change out there. But let me throw throw something at you. That means more souls moving right next door. What would God have us do? Picket the trees? Or get more involved with trying to reach the community? The community is coming to us. It's learning to think. What would God do? What does God do in this matter? 
How does God... Can I show you? Thank you, Art, for correcting my typo earlier. I had Psalm 72. I want you to go to Psalm 78. Psalm 78. This text in Psalm 78 describes what God saw in David's heart. It gives, the, it gives a, an exact detail. Psalm 78, all the way down to the end of the chapter. He chose David. I'll give you a second to get there. Psalm 78. If you need help, that comes after 77. Okay. <laughs> Psalm 78, jump down to verse 70. He chose David also his servant and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the ewes who were great with young, he brought him to feed Jacob his people and Israel his inheritance. So David fed them according to, here's his heart. What's the description of his heart? The integrity of his heart. What, What does the word katam mean? A focus without hypocrisy. A genuine focus on God. A genuine, really, I want to serve the Lord. I, I, I'm honest. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not playing games. Will Rogers, any of you remember ever reading his quips? He was a humorist from the previous genera, uh, two generations. And he wrote about integrity. As, as Here's how he described integrity. You ought to live in such a way that you'd have no worries selling your pet parrot you had for years to the local town gossiper. Okay. That's integrity. That all of a sudden, the way you said things at home, the way you talked, all of a sudden it's revealed everywhere and you wouldn't worry about it. That's integrity of heart. Integrity of heart is what David had. As a young man, as a teenager... He was an individual, though, though he was in a monotonous job, even though he was just doing routine after, even though he was a kid, forgotten by his family, he had a loyalty to God. Even when he was all alone in the fields with sheep and trees and birds, he was God-focused. I, I've told you this before that the guy who really mentored my life personally and who helped start our church back in 79, uh, Dr. E. Robert Jordan, tells about his own moment when he got an encounter with God that was weird. Where he had a, he, basically, he hit a brick wall and had to had examine his own, own life. And it happened when he was in the Navy, World War II, stationed in Philadelphia, he wasn't born again, rough and tumble guy. I mean, you know, he said that he could fight, you know, cuss and carry on with the best of the sailors and usually outdo most of them. He had a weekend pass. He goes to the Jersey Shore, and while he's walking on the shore, he meets a guy who's literally a beach bum. He said the guy was weird. The guy was weird. He was just standing there as people walked by. Do you know who you are? Do you know who you are? Do you know who you are? And Jordan said I was bored, didn't know what I was going to do. Do you know who you are? And so he said, I thought, this looks like a good fight waiting to happen. You know, put this guy out of his misery. So he got right in front of him and he said, no, you tell me who I am. You want to know who you really are? <laughs> you are who you are when you're all alone. He said, I didn't punch the guy. I was shocked. Went home and he said, I thought about it and thought about it. The guy's right. The guy's right. The real me, the real character, the real heart is revealed when we're all alone. The real heart is revealed by what you look on the computer when you're all alone. The real heart is how you talk to your family when you're all alone. The real heart is how you treat your spouse when you're all alone. The real you is revealed by when you're driving and you're all by yourself and what you think about other people, what you might say. And David, when he's all alone, what does he reveal about himself? We read it in the Psalms. He, we, we read about a person who meditated on the Lord, who praised God, who prayed over and over and over when he was all alone. That's a heart after God, a man after God's own heart. That's the type of person that... that we ought to be. You know, they did, a, they did a, a, a thing of people 95 years old, and they asked a number of them, 50 of them, if you had to live over, what would you do? Interesting what they said. They had all kinds of answers, all a bunch of them, but these three came up a lot. 
Number one, I would reflect more. Number two, I would risk more. Number three, I would do more concerning what goes and lives beyond me. Take that from a Christian point of view. Would you pray more and reflect more and meditate more? Would you try to do more service for the Lord? Would you invest your time and energy in things that will last beyond this life? Well, David was the type of person that he would have signed up and said, yeah, I'm willing to do that. At 16 years of age, I'm willing to do that. I'm willing to walk with the Lord, serve the Lord. Remember, he's agreeing to allow himself to become the future king, and they all know even the prophet is afraid of Saul at this moment. He's afraid he's going to get killed. David signed up for something tough, but he was willing. He was willing. He was willing to say, hey, I'm going to, this, if this is what it calls, I'm willing to do it. This week, I was talking to one of my daughters, and we were talking about, hey, what about getting together sometime this summer if it works to get together? And we were talking about, you know, what would work if there's a time, and she says, yeah, well, their weekends, they have commitments at their church, so that's tough. And I said, well, I guess I have some commitments at church on weekends, so that'd be tough for me. And then we joked, and we said, man, church gets in the way of so many things we'd like to do. Yeah, we were just joking about it. But I've run into people who don't joke about it anymore. Coming out of COVID, there's people that are saying, you know, I like the life without church. Not if you have a heart after God's. I know some people can't come. That's not what we're talking about. But we're talking about getting under the Word of God again on a regular basis. A man after God's own heart is going to be the type of individual who they own it when they've done wrong. They're the type of individual, they'll do the tough job. They'll say, God, I want to serve. And God will bless them. So the question is, where is your heart today? What kind of heart does God see right now? As you sit there, what does God see? In all honesty, you are what you are before you and God right now. A person after God's own heart? Really? You need to have a focus that's not distracted by things of this world. You probably heard about this lady who she was an Olympic runner in the female categories of running some long distance. And so she tried for the Olympics, didn't make it first of all, tried a second time, went to the Sydney Olympics in 2000, and she placed the best that an ever, ever that an American female runner placed in that Olympics. She placed eighth. She continued her career to a degree, and she changed at the turn of the century. She went into international marathon competition. First time she ran, first race she ran in the marathon, she rated the second best time of any female American athlete. You know what's weird about this? She's blind. She can see little images and little, little things. But for the most part, she's blind. And they asked her, they said, does that interfere? She says, no, it helps me. I don't get distracted by the other runners and everything around me. And all I can do is just focus and keep my eyes on what's, what's ahead. That I can't see, but where I'm going. You know, some of us need to become blind to the things that distract. And just focus and say, God, give me your vision. Give me your sight. Help me to think the way you think. Give me a heart after your own heart. You do it, God will bless. Father, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the attentiveness of these good folk. Thank you for their patience and listening. Thank you for the story that we hear of this hero who starts off as just like us. A lot younger, but just like us. But he had a heart after you. God, please, help me to have that heart. Help me to be that sensitive, that engaged in meditation and praying and praising. Help me to be that yielded, that desirable to put my life on the line if it meant to just serve you. Please, please give that heart to many of my friends here. Help us to be that dedicated. Your heads are bowed, your eyes are closed, and before we close...
you're here this morning and you do not know for sure you're on your way to heaven, I want to give you this opportunity right now to go and talk with somebody on our staff who can show you from the Word of God how to be sure you're going to heaven. You don't join our church. You make no commitments to us. This is making a commitment between you and Jesus Christ. There's a set of doors on the right side of our auditorium that we have staff there right now standing in that doorway. If you would like to go and talk with one of those individuals while I continue closing this service in prayer, get from your pew and go and meet one of those folk. They'll take you to a private room, share the word, and you decide what you do. Please, don't leave without knowing for sure you're on your way to heaven. This is your chance to find out. Go right now while I finish praying. Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for the opportunity we've had to worship you this morning. We thank you for our families, our friends. Thank you for the fellowship we've had. Thank you for the singing. Thank you for the special by the young people. Thank you for the words we've been able to hold in our lap, your word. Thank you for friends. Give us a good time of fellowship as we go out. Give us safety as we leave. Help us as we walk away to think, to thank, to be more like you in whose name I pray. Amen. Thanks, guys. Thanks, ladies. Thanks for being here. God bless you. See you tonight.